everyone. Welcome back to Reality 2.0. I'm Katherine Druckmann. Doc Searles is co-hosting with me as usual. And we have two guests today. One of them is a regular, and, and he is Kyle Rankin, who you, I'm sure you know by now, but Kyle Rankin is the newly installed president of Purism. If you don't know what Purism is, you should definitely check that out, but you probably do because you've listened to the show before. And we also have Holmes Wilson, who is among other things, the co-founder of Fight for the Future, which is a great organization you should check out if you're not familiar, and also the founder of Quiet. And we will let him kind of fill those out a little bit. But uh, before we get started, I wanted to remind everyone to check out our website at reality2cast, that is the number two in the URL. And I think there is a chance we might have some pretty interesting supplementary information for this episode, so definitely check it out there. Um, so yeah, so Doc, I'm going to hand it over to you to, to give a more thorough introduction. Tell us a little bit more about what we're talking about today. Yeah, well, I, I learned about Quiet and, and Holmes from, I think it was from something he posted in the, um, the Ber a Berkman Klein list of announcements. Uh, and uh, I've been, I'm an, I'm an alumnus fellow of the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard and um, still run a project there, which is to say, they have a server that they let me use, but I'm on the announcements list. And I saw what he was doing when he, when he announced that, I thought, okay, we have to talk about this because it looks really interesting. So, so with that, I just, um, and then I, I got a little demo. Uh, Holmes and I talked earlier this week. I was very intrigued by it um, because I think we need it. <laughs> so, so Holmes, you want to explain a little bit about where Quiet's coming from and what it's about? Sure. Um, so Quiet is an attempt to build an alternative to Slack or Discord. Um, the team chat apps like Slack or Discord that does not depend on any central server. And instead of depending on central server infrastructure in Quiet, the app on your device connects to the apps on the devices of the people in the community that you're in and syncs data over, in this case, messages over Tor using um, using IPFS and an IPFS-based CRDT, which is a technology for um, for syncing state between a decentralized or in a decentralized context. And the advantages of this are potentially um, privacy and security, but also uh, it's really good for software freedom because you aren't dependent on code running on a cloud service that um, where you either have to sort of bring your own server or essentially give a, a part of your software freedom to whoever is running that server. The state that it's in is very early. No one should use it for anything that requires security at the moment. Um, and it has almost no features except being able to um, being able to create basically a space where people can chat. And I can talk a bit more about, about how to do that using Quiet and how it, it does that under the hood. Um, but our goal is to make something that has the features you'd expect from um, something like Slack or Discord or Element but that, yeah, it doesn't require you bring your own server or trust someone else's. CRDT is uh, for collaborative editing, right? Is, and you're using it for that? I don't is, is, do, you have, do you plan for collaborative editing to be part of that? We generally don't think of Slack that way or Discord that way. It's sort of like people take turns chatting. So how does that work? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, CRDT was kind of, it's a what conflict-free replicated data type. Um, I think that's right. I, it, and it um, it was initially, uh, it, it was the first solution to the problem of how do you make something like Google Docs um, where, 
or, or you know, Etherpad, where everybody can edit a document together and everyone's versions of the document sort of sync with each other. It was the first solution to the problem of how to do that in a decentralized context without a central server mediating that and, you know, telling everyone what the latest changes were. And without the problem of the documents at some point, for some reason, getting out of, out of sync and people having different states. A CRDT was the first solution to that problem in, in the academic literature. I think the paper came out in 2011. I, I might be misremembering. Mm -hmm. um, but, um, but yeah, uh, so, so you often think of it um, as something that's used for real-time document editing. But actually, um, you know, the problem of sharing state is between, between different apps is something that happens a lot in apps that we're familiar with. So messaging apps do it. I mean, you know, if you think about um, the big, so, you know, most of the teams I was on before Slack existed use IRC. And the, the tricky thing with IRC that, that Slack did really well and that, that was a relief when we started using Slack, despite the software freedom sacrifice, was that, um, you know, with IRC, you had to kind of jump through hoops to be able to see messages that were sent while you were offline. Um, you know, I remember people setting up like Biddleby on a server and then being able to connect to it or, or using some type of like, yeah, you had to kind of do do funny things to to be able to, um, to, to see what was sent while you were gone. Whereas Slack um, would let you go offline and you could come back online and your client would just ask Slack server for the latest messages that were sent while you were gone and Slack would oblige and, you know, uh, and sync. And so what's happening there is a, is a syncing of state between um, between you and the server and also between all the peers in the server. And so effectively a syncing of state between um, everybody in the in the Slack uh, channel and um, or community. And then the trick is if we want to create, or the thing is if we want to create something that feels as functional as Slack, where you can see stuff that was sent while you're gone, um, and where everybody kind of sees the same conversation without having to, you know, do sort of special tricks, you need something like that. You need something that can sync state reliably. And a CRDT is really good for that. I feel like I, inevitably I want to take the, the, the questions to somewhere that's going to get us emails um, about being too political, but <laughs> considering things that are going on in the news, let's just say, I'm wondering how you see uh, this type of um, application of your technology being used to protect people who might want to communicate about things that are very controversial. Yeah, so I mean, I think Tor is known for enabling things that are controversial. It's it's in a set of technologies that are very radically empowering. I think end-to-end -end encryption itself is one of those technologies, right? Where it sort of works whoever's using it in this very reliable way and has these properties that um, are really desirable for privacy. But it, you know, end-to-end -end encryption, you know, Diffie Hellman Key Exchange does not care who you are. It gives right. um, you its security properties wherever you are. Um, I think that, um, I mean, we could talk more about it, but I think I, um, I, I've been in this space a while and I think that the basic, well, I think the basic um, liberal values of, um, you know, liberal in the sort of traditional sense values of uh, freedom of expression and 
um, and freedom of association are extremely important to preserving democracy. And I think that they're the extension of those values into this tech space as like software freedom and being able to read and understand and modify and distribute um, the code that you're using um, for the, the applications that are important in your life. I think that that's really, really important too. And, and the expressive um, uh, freedom of, of software developers is, is also something really important for society. So I'm kind of, I don't know, I guess now I'd say like sort of old-fashioned old or traditional in that sense, um, but in an unapologetic way. And and ultimately, I think that um, you know tools that are radically empowering are really good for society because sometimes majorities, you know, make bad decisions. I mean, and I came up as an activist in the time of the Iraq War, and we saw how that turned out. You know, and and um, and at the time, I think. Uh, it was very unpopular to be against the war. You know, it's the kind of thing that might damage your career or, you know, make you enemies with your neighbors. And, um, and, and I think, uh, I think, you know, in this moment, people sometimes think about controversial things as being sort of antisocial, but we have to remember that throughout history, controversy has been really important for keeping society um, honest and for preventing some of like the worst, uh, you know, overreaches of power or the worst types of violence by, by, um, you know, majorities or the government. And so the government, the, the, the governments, I should say. Um, and so, yeah, I think tech like this is really great. And, and this is why I'm doing it. You know, I, I, I've my, in my, my work has gone back and forth between tech and politics and now I'm in like a tech side, but I used to sort of doing, as co-founder of Fight for the Future, more straight up activism on issues like privacy um, and and a freedom of expression online. And yeah, so the I'm working on this for a reason because I believe in these things and because I think um, I think we need more radically empowering technologies and more software freedom and more autonomy. Um, and uh, and that that will make the world better. You know, and, and, and then I think there's a family of potential uses for technology like Tor, um, you know, in places where there are authoritarian governments that are trying to continue and where movements are trying to unseat those governments. You know, I think Tor's or technology's power to aid those movements can be overstated. You know, there isn't any tool that's gonna, like you push a button and you get around the Great Firewall or you push a button and, you know, you can be, whatever kind of radical, radical activist and the dictator can't find you um, and hurt you. Like that tech is never gonna really uh, be a, you know, a silver bullet or a kind of all-in-one solution. But I, I think that, um, you know, human rights organizations and, um, and democratic governments in some cases, including the US and EU have funded radically empowering technologies over the years because they do seem to sort of turn the dial and give um, people in resistance movements just a little bit more breathing room, just a little bit more of an edge. And sometimes that's all you need to get momentum um, around a movement that can be, that can ultimately unseat a dictator. Um, and I don't know, that that would be one of my greatest aspirations for, for this tool someday, although it's nowhere near where it needs to be in order to enable that kind of work now. It's just not, not um, solid or scrutinized enough. That, that actually kind of reminds me, uh, so I 
I uh, have a couple of questions just real quick along those lines, actually, about, you know, being ready yet. We've talked the last two episodes, I guess, about Mastodon and how it, Mastodon has seen this massive uh, influx of new users um, and also people just sort of reviving their old accounts that they had parked and it's seen a ton of activity. And the first part of the question is, do you see this sort of being like that at some point or, or being as significant as Mastodon? But also, you know, in terms of being ready yet, I wonder how you think about that kind of last mile when you're getting something like this ready uh, and making it usable, not just for the Uber geeks of the world, but for every, everybody and make it, because there are, there is some clunkiness, for example, to something like Mastodon. And, you know, those of us here on this call probably don't notice it. I don't really notice it, but I've seen people mention these things. Well, you know, when you follow somebody on a different server, you have to go for this extra step and, you know, it's confusing or, or something like that. And I, there's always this one little thing that, that keeps it from, really taking off in the way that something a little bit simpler to use does. And I, I'm just wondering kind of how you think about getting it to that point. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's hugely important. So, you know, I think we've seen with, um, with uh, Signal um, that you can, if you make something, you, you can sort of make, get something to a point where it's usable for some group of people, you can, um, you know, keep at it over the years and, and, and sort of keep polishing it. It doesn't have to be perfect. But then in these moments where people are either um, really worried about their privacy or really unhappy with another tool they're using that's functionally similar, you can get a big influx um, of users from that other platform. And, you know, I think, I think messaging apps are pretty great in this respect. They, they, they have a degree of openness, which is that they, are not their functionality is kind of co commodity or something or kind of like interchangeable like if the tool lets you communicate with your friends it lets you communicate with your friends if you want to move um, a circle of friends from one messaging app to another typically you just have to sort of send an invite link to the group you know to the group and say we're oh, let's try this other thing everybody move over and if everybody in that moment has an okay enough time moving over that the new group reestablishes itself on the new platform then um you know, you just you just had a little mini exodus, and that can feed on itself. And and in these moments of you know, the most recent memorable one was was Signal when WhatsApp put out an update that showed a sort of scary because it is privacy policy warning and or privacy policy change, and uh, that triggered a kind of um, collective awareness moment in India where people were all of a sudden switching on mass to Signal. Um, and signal servers could just barely, you know, signal had to like hold on for dear life for, for a few weeks just to, um, just to keep up or months maybe. Um, and uh, like signal had a few of those moments before that, um, you know, and, and VPNs have moments like that, um, you know, VPN use after the Snowden revelations or something, or Tor has had moments like that, I believe. Um, definitely locally, at least. Um, I think my, my essentially my, my master plan for marketing is to make sure that the app is not clunk is, is, is has a little enough clunk that you can have, you could possibly have a group of people really using it daily and enjoy it and enjoying it and to confirm that that's the case. And we're doing that by dog footing internally and by testing with a small number of groups. And then 
to make sure that we're ready for an influx if 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 and when one happens um, by user testing that like that process of going from WhatsApp to quiet or going from Discord to quiet or going from Slack to quiet and to see how that goes and making sure that it's smooth and that you know 20 people or 50 people or 100 people all have a good time and make the make the move and then I think you know you polish and keep putting your tool out there and wait wait for that moment where discord messes up or where slack messes up and does something terrible or where you know um people people's threat model changes radically and all of a sudden your tool fits their threat model pretty good um and and i think as far as uh how we reduce the clunk to that level where you know you can have an influx like that and it isn't limited by the you know by the clunkiness of the tool um I think peer-to-peer, a peer-to-peer design actually gives us an advantage over a federated design. Um, there's there's an ongoing conversation about this, and it's gotten a little bit contentious at points um, between folks like groups like um, you know groups working on federated tech like Matrix, or Mastodon perhaps, um, and groups working on centralized but free and open source tech like Signal. Um, and Moxie Marlon Spike, the Signal founder, um, has this, this post called "The Ecosystem Is Moving," where he talks about um, he talks about how innovation in a federated context is difficult, and how creating user good user user experiences in a federated context is difficult because most people aren't are not going to run a server. I, I think. I mean, there are many people in the free software movement. I think have thought, or at least hoped, that the way we would get past this transition to the cloud would be that everyone would bring their own server and become common to have a server running in your house the way you have a Wi-Fi router in your house. But, um, you know, for a server to be good, it has to cost a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks or maybe more than that. And it's just another thing people have to buy and they have to wrap their heads around it and maintain it. And I think that's always given the cloud an advantage. Um, and then if you don't bring your own server, you have to trust someone else's um, and find some, you know, find a friend who has a server and, that could be okay, but even just the like the part in the sign-on process where you have to enter not just your username and your password, but also the server name and sort of show that you have permission to use that server or something, that gets a little weird. And um, you know, or maybe there's a default server, but you don't want to use the default, or you do. Um, that creates a, and I think with with peer-to-peer -peer apps potentially, um, you can create a better user experience because you the app itself can bring with it all of the, so to speak, infrastructure it needs in order to create the experience that it needs to create without depending on this like third, third party or third thing. And where you don't have to specify that third thing, you open up the app. So right now the way the way sign-on works in Quiet is you open up the app, um, you can either join a community that was created by somebody else or create your own. Um, to join a community created by somebody else, you paste in a code, which is an onion address, but without the onion suffix, but it's basically a Tor onion address. To create a community, you just say, I want to create a community, and then you invite others by giving them that code. They they, they go through the process, they, they open the app, they paste in the code, uh, and you're all in a community together. And then everything's normal. Uh, it just sort of works. And, and yeah, there's some weird things when, you know, if you're offline and uh, and no one is online, or if you're online and no one else is online, your messages might not get delivered for a bit. But 
we found that in using it internally, that isn't such a big deal. Like, especially with like working with other people, you tend to work at the same times as other people because that's convenient, <laughs> or at least that's a few of your collaborators. And so the syncing of messages all sort of works out. But I guess I should just go back and say, um, there's this debate about federation versus centralization where the centralization folks say that federation is kind of both um, a UX problem and also potentially a security problem because, you know, if it, you, the, the, you are probably not as capable of securing your own server as Google is or as Signal is. And, but then if you use, if you're going to use um, a central server or a, a very popular server that is very secure, you are then exposed to the problem of, well, the power that that server wields over you. And also the additional complexity that the system had to um, build in in order to accommodate multiple servers, which itself could be a distraction or security issue. Whereas with a centralized server, you don't have to, a centralized system, you don't have to worry about any of that. I think peer-to-peer -peer is actually, has more of the advantages than that centralization has where you have one way that you're doing things and it works and you don't have to sort of choose who you're relying on. Um, you're relying on the app itself, but it also has the decentralization advantages. Obviously the Federation does in fact, more of them. Um, you know, the, the app running on your computer is the, is the code is, is the whole system and you have control over it by virtue of running it on your computer and being able to fork it and being able to understand it and you know, all that stuff. Um, so, so I think peer to peer apps, once we get the plumbing, right, put us in a better position to create great user experiences and minimize clunk than, um, a federated system like Mastodon. That said, it doesn't, we just don't just get that for free. It, I think it opens up some doors and sort of smooths the path or gives us a better path, but we still have to walk that path and, um, and do the work of polishing things, which, you know, ultimately I think comes down to copying familiar uh, UX models uh, that people are used to so that, you know, you, the app is familiar more than anything, wherever possible and, um, and testing with people. So um, I'm glad you brought up Signal uh, because one of the questions I had sort of, I guess, can somewhat relate to that, which is around the notion of identity. So, you know, you're on a, a platform known for anonymization, right? And so there's, there's definitely a lot of benefits for anonymity, but at the same time, I was wondering how you manage, um, I guess, identity in general. Um, like for example, Signal's cases, they, they started with the design decision of everyone has a phone number and that's your identity. And then, so it's transferable. And now that's somewhat controversial as you know, I'm sure. And then they've had some sense of, well, now can we do something that doesn't require a phone number as the root of identity, right? And they've had to sort of re-engineer that. Um, and so I was wondering, I imagine you factor that into you, sort of your design decisions for identity and maybe how one transfers identity between devices or, you know, that might be running quiet or, um, or I recoverability, I lose a device and now I want to rejoin all of that. Um, like recoverability, I'll, I'll, I'll start with that and then just sort of go from there. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so let's see, I think I'll just sort of say the way we do it first and then sort of talk about the principle behind it. So the, the first thing is that, um, is that the type of product we're targeting is a different type of product. It's sort of a different class of product than Signal or WhatsApp. We're building a 
chat app for Teams, something more analogous to Discord or Slack, where you have a bounded number of users that are part of a community um, and that were led in by some by some initial you know admin uh, or community creator. Um, whereas Signal and WhatsApp are open networks where everyone comes in you know as themselves, and you need to be able to talk to everyone else in the world. Um, open networks like that are difficult to uh, are are more difficult to address with a peer-to-peer -peer app in the current state of peer-to-peer -peer tech than a bounded network of members of a team. So right off the bat, um, building something that's analogous to Slack or Discord, or you know, for that matter, Google Docs or you know, an Asana instance or a um, discourse community or something, that class of apps where you have a bounded number of people that are all like in a private space together, but they've all been led in by somebody. That is much, much easier to address with with peer-to-peer -peer app um, and then, then something like Signal would be. And so we're doing it that way. So let's see. I the the way that we handle identity in Quiet is when is that um, there is a right now, and, and and this will evolve and get more complicated as we as we um, move forward because it's it's a little too there is some clunk here right now there's some clunkiness and unfamiliarity right now um, in the way we do it uh, that I think we can improve upon so it'll get more complicated as we go forward but the way that we do it right now is we say that there is one owner of a community and they are the one who gives the invite link which is an onion address out to everybody and they must be online when someone accepts that invitation or uses that invite link um, because it's just an onion address and they're providing they're hosting that onion address on their device on their one device that they've you know, used to start the community and what happens when someone joins is they um they connect to that device and send a certificate signing request that says who they are and you know and their their uh their key information their public key information um, and then they get back a signed certificate from the owner that says, okay, cool, you're who, you know, this is a certificate that you can show to other people in the community that says you're a member of this community and that says uh, what I have said you can say your name is. <laughs> and, and we have one single owner and we use standard public key infrastructure. You know, this is a, this is a problem that's very standard. You know, it's how sort of how um, the web works. Uh, kind of um, with SSL certificates and stuff. Um, it, you have certificate authorities and intermediate CAs and, uh, and then you know, sign certificates that people use to, to um, determine identity or assert identity. Um, you have it in corporate networks. So we're using standard PKI library um, that an, an approach that gives us that. Now, that's not a global identity that's only relative to the community that you're in and the weakness is that potentially the owner of the community is is the is the ruler in this case and could um give sign a certificate for themselves that says that they're you um and so on top of that we have to build in some protections that um well and so that we have to we have to trust the community owner to some degree and the threat model um uh can only protect against a malicious community owner to some degree. It can't do it maybe perfectly in the case of protecting against impersonation, but we can um, sync the set of certificates granted the same way that we sync all the messages. 
And so as soon as you connect to some other peers, you'll start to get um, a list of all of the people in the community and what their um, certificates are, what their key information is. And then, and definitely once you start communicating with them, you'll have that. Um, and so really it's, it's a bit like signal with, um, you know, trust on first use where you, what's better than trust on first use, but once you are, at least once you are communicating, communicating with somebody, a malicious administrator can no longer impersonate them because you already have their key information. So anyway, that's, that's sort of, that's how, that's the basic outline of how we're doing it. And then, um, then in terms of how we do recovery, um, we haven't built that part yet. Like I said, the app has no features. In terms of how we imagine doing it, our first pass answer is to do it the way that crypto wallets do it and give you a, give you a passphrase you can write down for, for the administrator at least so that they can, um, they have like some root CA key that they can keep offline and that they can use to reconstitute the community. And then for individuals, maybe we do the same thing and let you reconstitute your account that way. Um, or maybe we say, you know, you just ask for another invitation from the owner. And, you know, if you lose your phone, you, you, you know, ask your CTO or your, um, you know, community mod or something like that to let you back in. Um, and yeah, and that actually gets a bit, account recovery potentially can be smoother in the context of a community that is bounded and where there is an owner because the owner can use their discretion to let someone back in or maybe restore access to someone's name, at least maybe not their messages. Um, or maybe you just come in with a new name. Uh, so that's pretty much how we're doing it. And yeah, I'm curious what you think of that approach. There's definitely, you know, ways we could refine it, but that's kind of like the baseline, you know, Naive, most naive implementation, and um, you know, you can make it better by introducing maybe some centralization. Maybe you can make it better by introducing some second factor. Maybe there's some other UX things you can do to make it simpler. But no, I, I think that makes sense, and also it sort of maps to because I think a lot of people when they think about a peer-to-peer -peer system, they're not in I don't, one. I think a lot of people are out of practice thinking about how peer-to-peer -peer systems compare or contrast with like a centralized system. And the, the powers or the issues that you were talking about now are the same if we were talking about, say a, uh, say a matrix server or a, even a Mastodon instance where you have a moderator or moderators or someone who owns that, who has those powers as well. You know, like they have the they could they have the ability to change someone's identity to to impersonate that identity, um, in the same like for example, um, and you also sort of answered a question I was going to follow up with about moderation, which it makes sense that whoever creates the room now basically is sort of like room moderator, and then um, as as has quote unquote godlike powers over that room, but that would make sense because they're they're creating that. And I imagine at some point you might be able to delegate authority or something. A lot of chat yeah. rooms do that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. No, but yeah, I think that makes sense. And recovery makes sense. Like I said, if like imagine it's this, it's all of these questions, like as I'm thinking of them, I mean, maybe it's just me because I'm thinking of them and then thinking, yeah, but this is the same issue you run into running a centralized system. It's just, you're offloading that concern. Like you're just that moderator who's running that system elsewhere has the same either authority or the same, you know, the same things can happen. Yeah, yeah, and what, you know, the funny thing is that, um, 
One funny thing is the relationship between this and like the, the sort of cryptocurrency blockchain movement or, you know, the relationship between an app like this and the cluster of free software projects that are descendant from Bitcoin. Um, and one interesting, well, the first interesting thing is when I set out to make something like this, I thought it would be cool to build it on a cryptocurrency stock. So I was messing around with Zcash and, you know, seeing if I could do messaging on Zcash or identity on Zcash. And there's some things that are cool about that, but it, it just isn't a stack that's really built for this. And you, you need to, you know, we needed something that was that was closer in order to just make a chat app that felt like that felt good. Um, but the interesting thing, so the first interesting thing is that to build a very broad class of decentralized applications, you totally don't need cryptocurrency or blockchain. Like you, you can address a lot of different types of of the needs of different types of applications without that. But there are some things that are hard to do without it, and um, and that are and where a blockchain-like system can be really cool and help address some of these things. So, one cool thing that blockchain-based systems can do that you can't do otherwise is like, uh, or that we don't know how yet to do otherwise is um, unique names in a decentralized network that are self that are self-certifying or controlled by by end users. So, like, if you so we can have these like separate communities where I'm homes in one community and homes in another community. But if we wanted to make it so I have a username the way I do on GitHub that is global and works across all of my communities and where someone can just like type in Holmes Worcester and add me to any community and know that because they typed in that name correctly, they added the right person um, and, and, it's, and their connection with me is secure. You can't do that in a decentralized way without something like a blockchain. But if you have a blockchain, you can. Um, and that's kind of cool. And another place where that comes up is message ordering. Um, it's, you can kind of create a sort of loose relative order to messages, but you can never be totally sure who sent what message first in all cases without um, a central authority or something like a blockchain. Um, and so in, yeah, that, that's a funny place where you can get you can peer-to-peer um, -peer apps are, fall a little short of like what you can do with a centralized app in terms of the security properties you can provide, but where you can get closer to those security properties by doing something with, with um, blockchain tech if you wanted to, although then it comes along with all the baggage of that. Um, and you know, users have to bring some money to the party and that's annoying. Um, you know, what works like, like most apps in normal reality don't make you pay money to have a username. So, um, so yeah, there's that. And I think also, um, yeah, ultimately though, there is this question of like, you do need some root of trust. And so you have to choose what that is. And the, if the root of trust is the community creator, um, that has certain benefits and drawbacks. If the root of trust is a blockchain, that has certain benefits and drawbacks. And if the root of trust is a federated server or a centralized server, that, that has benefits and drawbacks. Um, but I, I do think that the peer-to-peer, the peer-to-peer -peer, um, peer blockchainless version of this is is actually pretty good um, for for like situations where you have a team collaborating.
Well, and another thing that blockchain brings with it is a sense of permanence, right? And, and that was something else I sort of wanted to ask you about is one value, at least in some uh, chat messaging systems, is ephemerality, or at least that's a feature that some tout, right? And so I was, and, and then there's a couple of interesting use cases, especially when you're com either combining anonymity or, or groups. Uh, for instance, there's a recent discussion that ended up being on a social on social media about a way an implementation of when the signal does this. But essentially, I have a group. It has it has past conversations. I invite a new member to the group. Does that new member see past conversations or not? So I guess that's two questions. One is about general purpose ephemerality of messages, and either I imagine some people want them to be permanent, and other people want them to disappear, and then second. That, that specific use case of having new people join the community. Yeah, well, so I think there's a there's a general thing, which is that um, I think there's one thing here that we that, that I know, that I know the way in my bones and, and in my personal lived experience and, and that I know I have to do, which is that, that um, there must be an option for ephemerality. And like, you cannot choose a stack for this that is not ephemeral for, for messages and still purport to offer privacy like uh and this is part of the reason why i stopped messing around with zcash is because everything there was like permanent possibly encrypted forever but but everything you wrote was in this global shared state and that didn't make any sense um for messaging you you must give people the in in this day and age with the threats that exist and with the current state of endpoint security you must give people an option to delete their stuff because that's the only way in practice that that high risk users can can be private and even then it's hard um but uh but yeah you have to give people a way to delete messages and i think also if you are building a tool for um for sensitive uses i think it's good if you make that the default and and you the stand the best practice in um in or in organizations that are subject to some kind of or, or groups that are subject to some kind of threat of institutional doxing, like, you know, the threat where somebody hacks your email server and spills out all your internal communication selectively, perhaps onto the internet in order to make you look bad. That's anyone subject to that kind of threat uh, needs. And even if you don't know that you are, but <laughs> you should probably do it anyway, you need to have some type of policy where stuff only gets saved intentionally. And the default is that things get deleted after a certain amount of time. Um, and that's, that's something that we did internally at Life for the Future. Um, we were very, very, very glad that we did it when um, when a an attacker that Citizen Lab um, called or the Citizen Lab identified as Beltrox Infosec or something like that uh, tried to hack us with a fairly sophisticated phishing attempt in order to get access to our internal comms in order to give them to private investigators who were working for. Um, probably funded sort of two steps removed by lobbyists for the US telecom industry. This sounds kind of crazy, but um, we, there's been a decent amount of, we, we were subject to an aggressive phishing attempt and a sophisticated phishing attempt in the, at the height of one of our net neutrality campaigns. And in parallel to that, there's been a lot of reporting both about who did the, what service provider did that attack, what their business model was and what types of clients they worked for. And also in parallel to that, there's been reporting on um, 
dirty tricks campaigns by telecom companies during that fight that included things like um, buying large numbers of stolen identities and submitting them to the FCC as if they were valid comments opposing net neutrality. There was this like, so there's this constellation of um, work that was happening that was very, very um, dark side that ended up getting aimed at us. And when that happened and when we started to become, when we became aware that someone was trying to get access to our internal communications, we were really, really glad that we had a document retention policy that deleted all of our email after a certain number of months and that wiped out our Slack after a certain number of months. Everybody should be doing that. And so I'm definitely gonna make a tool that does that. And we've put a lot of thought into how to do that. Um, and we don't have the exact design yet, um, but that's, it's definitely one of the first features we'll implement is some type of timed deletion, probably time deletion set by the community owner globally and then potentially like um, with the ability to pin messages for posterity if you need to do that and with the ability to shorten the deletion period if you want to do that. Um, so that's definitely something we're going to do. Um, and then the, the next part of it is, so that's the, that's the piece that I know. And then there's another piece that I have no idea about because it completely depends on what someone's threat model is and what the use case is and what people want, what actual users that you have in that actual moment want. Because there's a million ways you can do this. And the sort of controversy or conversation that you alluded to about you know, how Signal does it is just a great example. There's like, um, so there are questions, yeah, like, like do you, is your convert is the conversation you want to invite someone into so that they can scroll back and see where the conversation has been up to that point and get context? Or do you want when you invite someone in, do you want them to be totally unaware of the conversation that's been happening up to that point, to the point where like people could have been talking about them in the channel right up to the point that they joined um, and know that they would not be able to see any of those things? Um, that that's one question. Right now we we work like Slack does, where you can see conversations that have happened before you join, because you're in a team, you're welcome to the team, and you want to be able to kind of like follow it. Um, or you want to be able to like situate yourself in the team's conversations and catch up. And that's an important thing. If users say that they want something different, we can we can make it so that you, um, you know, so that the encryption is ratcheting or something, and you don't get access to uh, conversations that happened before you arrived. But we'll, we'll wait and see on that. Um, and then in terms of how you do time deletion, um, there's funny questions there. Like, so Signal actually, Signal does it in a way that I think most people, most people would be surprised to know how Signal does it, I think, because the intuition you have is like, okay, I sent a message and the channel is set to dis for messages to disappear in a week. And so they're gonna disappear in a week. And a week goes by and I know that that's, that thing has been deleted. And that's not actually how Signal does it. Um, so Signal, First of all, the way it does multiple device support is you send to like, the message will get sent almost as if it was being sent to different users to each of a user's devices. And then there's a message queue for that device. And then the message will sit in that message queue until it gets delivered to that device. And then if the timestamp is such that the message is supposed to expire, that device itself will delete it. But the devices themselves are in charge of deletion. So when you send a message that has a disappearing time of a week, in Signal, uh, and someone in your community, you know, one of the people in the group has, um, one of the recipients has, you know, Signal desktop, but they haven't opened it in a year. 
that message is just going to sit in the queue on signal servers for that person's signal desktop instance for a long time, I think maybe forever. And also this is based on the other funny thing about this, this is based on me kind of weeding through the, the forums, the signal forums with a friend who, who was concerned about this and I was trying to figure out what signal was doing. It, even just like communicating this to the user has never been worth, it has always been complicated enough and not even really worth it enough for signal um, to really tackle. So like uh, you, you have to kind of get in the weeds just to know how they're doing it. And then of course they could change it at any point. Um, and I'm sure they're refining it all the time. So, so that's an interesting question. And another interesting question is like, does the timer, does the deletion timer start when the message is sent and created? Cause that kind of seems like it's how it should work. But then when you think about it, if the deletion time is a minute, you wouldn't really be able to ever have an effective conversation that way because you, you're relying on someone to be able to read all your messages in a minute of you sending them. Um, so actually the way Signal does it is the timer starts when the person reads it, I think, when the person first like sees it. Um, but then that has the unexpected result that you you have messages sitting around on devices and servers for way longer than the expiration time, which isn't desirable in some threat models. Um, yeah, and then you know, and then there's the other question which applies to Signal and us and everything, which is how do you know that somebody deleted it? You know, of course, a user can screenshot their app and you know <laughs> and, and keep everything scrolled away forever. Or they can, or a user could have a cloud backup service that they're using that's uh, always generating a new you know a new backup every every so often and helpfully sending a diff of everything to you know to iCloud or to Backblaze or something like that. Um, so you never really know. But, um, but uh, I think one of the things I'm interested in is how we can make visible to the user or at least to an administrator uh, when all of the clients in a group have, have dutifully deleted their expiring messages and when they have not or when they're not known to have. Or, and, and of course you wouldn't even, someone could be lying to you because they could be, they could have screen capped it. But like we, uh, even just an assertion that's, you know, where someone's saying I have deleted this message and you can assume that if they're not malicious and lying about it, that, uh, that the message is gone and where you can make, you know, have some idea of, of what type of um, stuff is sticking around forever without you wanting it to, that, that would be, that I'm really interested in that in ways that yeah. not a deletion system can be kind of, Giving you a giving you a status report on how successfully or how many clients and which clients have deleted messages, and then you could potentially kick someone out who hadn't, um, who who whose client you could kick out a person or a device that hadn't been seen online in a long time, and um, remove their access. Yeah, that sort of led to a follow up. I was wondering is this sort of there's a notion in peer-to-peer -peer, or there's notion in anything about who trusts what and who, you know, how much trust in, in traditional models, how much trust the client gets versus the server. Like you mentioned in the case of, of signal and issue is we, you ask for a policy and then the signal client decides whether it's going to, when it's going to delete and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering in peer-to-peer, -peer, there's some sort of, I guess, traditionally, there's a sense that all the, like, clients have more trust than they might traditionally have in, in sort of a centralized system because the centralized system often also centralizes trust where they trust themselves, but kind of don't trust the clients very much. And I was wondering um, in, in your model, 
like how much trust does say the the creator of a room or maybe maybe this is plans in the future but um how much trust do individual members do they share almost equivalent levels of trust or is it more trust is, is there more trust in the originator of a room um and how you've kind of approached that um well I explained how the identity system works and there we're, we're really leaning on the originator of the room um, or the people they delegate. But, and then for naming in particular, for the granting of a username of like a human readable username that's unique, which I think is familiar, both familiar and important, I think to, um, to peer -to, for peer to peer apps to at least attempt. Um, although there's some discussion about that, maybe it's not, but I, I think it is. For that, you need to lean really heavily on one person because otherwise there's no, well, there's no way that that's sort of sovereign to the group that you can get uniqueness without having something like a consensus algorithm or in a, in a blockchain or, um, or a central single authority. So in that case of naming, we really trust the admin, but then we we as users learn about names they they remember them and so they trust the admin once um and after that they they sort of trust uh signatures and public keys all right and so so then in terms of message privacy um right now we've only we only have messages that are visible to the whole group so we rely totally on tor and onion services to encrypt messages but at some point we'll add dms and private channels and in that case, you'll be able to send a message that is synced to everybody but encrypted just to the recipients. And in that case, you'll do a key exchange with the other parties to that conversation. And so it's provided that you have, that you're not being man in the middle somehow, that you will be able to, in, yeah, and there's layers of protection against that you would not be trusting the admin with the privacy review messages, for example. You'd all be kind of on an equal playing field for that. And then there's some stuff around message ordering where the CRDT has nice properties of um, kind of tangling all of the messages together into a, or not all of them, tangling all the messages in a channel, at least potentially across the whole community, but right now just in a single channel into a sort of graph where each message is linked to the hash of um, the previous message. And um, and so, you know, if someone wants to completely mess with the message ordering, there's limits on how they could do that. And everybody's kind of on equal footing. The admin wouldn't have really special powers to mess with the message ordering. Um, and um, and there, there are limits to that where there's some violations of message ordering that you can't guarantee it you can't protect against in that system but there are some that you can um and so yeah generally um we i mean i think i think the way to approach this stuff is to start with a threat model and the you know our, our threat model is essentially that um you know users should be able to or the 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 properties we want are that a, a user can communicate privately with other users and that um, 
a malicious user can't undermine that and that a malicious admin is limited in how they can undermine it as much as we can. So uh, I want to ask a question about how you grow. Um, there's, I, I've worked with a lot of startups and I've also followed a lot of uh, development program, uh, development projects like this one over many years. And early on, um, I or we, there was the group I was working with, noticed that there are three stages basically for every company, for every development group, whatever. Those are new, hot, and big. If they succeed, they go through these stages. And they're like state changes. They're What you're doing when you're new is very different than what you do when you're hot and you're dealing with that, and then very different than, than when you're big and you've reached scale. Um, in fact, I think I talked to um, Evan Williams about this uh, at when he was still at Twitter because Twitter just started out as a side thing that they were doing for with a little company they had called or uh, audio. And it was Twitter was just a way that they message each other. Basically it is just short message thing. And then it turned into something hot. And then it turned when they had to fail whale all the time. And then it turned into something big that Elon Musk just maybe bought. Right. So that's kind of an extreme case, but I think what you've got there, um, if, if it does succeed at scale, um, you've got, you've been talking, I, I mean, I really like the kind of heuristics you're going through that you're learning, you know, you're thinking out loud and I'm sure with your development team, you're going over this stuff all the time and you're using the, your tool for your own internal purposes, right? So you're, so there's a learning that goes on there. Um, so I'm wondering how, how you thought about that, you know, does, does Tor scale? Did, will you have to move past Tor? How do you change Tor? If when say if you succeed, the primary use of Tor may be quiet, and not I'm just hiding, you know, my browsing. You know, it's a community thing, and lots of people are using it. What? How's that go? Yeah. Um, so the main your main question is is less about like how do we grow and more about like how do we how do we if we do grow how do we ride that. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's actually, you know, you've got, a, you've got something that's really potentially huge and, and you can, you know, naturally you tend, one would tend to fantasize about this, but, and that's part of how we, how we anticipate things, you know, I mean, I've got something I've been working on for 10 years. It's still new, <laughs> you know, it's never, it's never gone to hot or big. I hope it does eventually. It probably won't. I don't know. But, um, but I, I imagined how that may go, but that's just me. You know, so I'm just wondering how, you know, your, how your fantasies inform your work, I guess, is a way of looking at it and how you look for problems downstream that might be, wow, that one may be insurmountable if we stay on this particular approach. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll start with Tor. You mentioned that. Um, well, maybe I'll start with the fantasy. I think the... <sighs> first layer of fantasy is that, or the fantasy for me is symbolist. One, it is that if we make this, we reduce clunk enough um, that people can have fun using this every day, that the general messaging app space is like moving forward slow enough for us to catch up with like some core set of features that, that are good enough for, for many uses. Um, and that, at some point, we start to have that cycle of influxes that Signal has had due to 
people due to discontent with existing platforms or worries about privacy or, or autonomy. And that's that's sort of the baseline, the baseline fantasy. And then we start we start to grow and we start to become the thing people use. Um, the next one is um, that we're able to find some way, we're able to find something that people are willing to pay for um, so that we can split the cost of making this thing awesome with some of our users. Um, and that we can do that in a way that's consistent with software freedom. Um, we might, that might mean offering some centralized piece or some features that like, you know, additional emojis or something like that that are trivial to add or that are in the open source version of the app and would be trivial to, for anyone to add, but that we just happen to not put in the official builds and where people are happy to pay us for the, for the lulls or for the vibes to, um, to have access to those features or some combination of those two things. You know, and, and an example of a centralized thing we'll probably provide is, or need to provide is a push notification service for iOS. Um, because if you want this to have push, if you want your team chat app to have push notifications on iPhones, you can't do that with peer-to-peer -peer apps, unfortunately, unless we, you know, unless we're outside the Apple headquarters with pitchforks and torches and manage to make serious changes there. Um, so then the next level of fantasy is that we is that this stack is so good for um, for build for enabling the building of team collaboration apps that you can actually build an app like a Kanban board or a document editing a collaborative document editing tool like Google Docs or a password sharing app like One Password for Teams. That it's easier to build those things inside something like Quiet on us either in Quiet or on a stack like Quiet than it is to build them using a traditional cloud stack and where people, this becomes the, the there, become, there becomes a new movement of free software developers working on, um, on rebuilding the apps that we use along peer-to-peer -peer private autonomous lines, similar to how, you know, similar to the way the GNU movement got started or the way Linux got started or the way, you know, no maps got built by community volunteers that said, okay, here's the moonshot. We know where we're going. We're trying to rebuild the desktop to be, but, but to be usable and free. Well, the, I think the, the maybe second biggest fantasy I have is that, is that I'm able to spark and, and quiet is able to spark a, move, a movement, a new phase of the free software movement where, um, where people are singularly focused, or there's a community of people focused on the singular moonshot of, rebuild all of the apps that we use to be, um, to work just as good as they do in the cloud, and, but run on our own devices without dependency on central infrastructure, at least for any, for any app where we know how to do that. And then the highest level of fantasy is to, is to break through some of the hard technical and research problems um, that make, that would make it difficult or impossible to do that for a broad class of apps for things like Facebook and Twitter or, you know, YouTube or um, there, there, there are apps right now that, that the existing quiet stack are, is totally inadequate for, uh, for building um, or replacing or substituting. And the fantasy is that we can punch through some of those, those tough research questions and find ways to make 
um, apps that move very large amounts of data or that, um, or that you know, move data in very complex ways in an open network, things that would be hard to do with our stack now, but we, that we figure out how to do some of that stuff and are, um, are able to you know, build features someday like you know, the, the feature Slack has where different communities can message between each other, not just within each other. Um, that's something that would be hard to do with our stack now, but we might be able to figure that out someday. And once you figure that out, you can build Twitter, you can build Facebook, you can build, um, you know, Google Calendar, G Suite, everything. You can sort of do everything once you have that. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of barriers to that, um, I think the biggest barriers are, um, you know, whether we can ride this, whether we can, with the resources we have access to at any given point, make things good enough um, with this sort of, for, for some period of the project, decentralization is gonna be a ball and chain. And for some period, it could be wind at our backs. Um, but, but right now it's a ball and chain. Like it, it would have taken us way less time to build a you know, basic Slack clone that does absolutely nothing um, with the centralized stack than it did to do this in a peer to peer way. So there's a lot of push through the pushing against the stack and or against their constraints of the stack right now. And I think the biggest question is for our survival is can we can we like stand that? Can we survive with that and still make something that's useful enough to get traction and start growing? And then then yeah, once once we get through that and and it does work really well and you know people are just starting new communities and jumping ship from from existing centralized platforms in or for federated platforms perhaps into this and that's going fine because it's a peer-to-peer app and it works no matter you know the cool thing is this scales no matter uh, for from our point of view assuming tor continues to exist and and work this scales um quite a lot without us really having to worry about it Be, because as long as you know if we make a community of a hundred or a thousand people work we can have as many of those communities as we need to um because they don't they don't really create more of a burden for us or for the network they're all isolated so that's really cool and then yeah the question is there's a question around tor um i think you know the um anonymity networks uh require anonymity sets you you can't have an anonymity an anonymity tool that only one person uses because you know if only one person uses the anonymity tool they're not anonymous no matter how fancy and amazing that tool is um, and and that if you think about what that means that means that if the more people are using Tor the more anonymous it is and the more anonymous it becomes potentially and um, and so uh, so a large influx of users is beneficial to Tor. And I think from Tor's perspective it would be a very good problem to have then, but th there is some physical or financial perhaps limit to that. I don't think there's really a technical limit because I think probably everything Tor does is, you know, a, a big O to the login scalable or whatever. I think it's, it's just that the, you know, would their current system for attracting volunteer node operators be able to sustain, you know, how much growth could that sustain in this like good problem to have scenario where everybody all of a sudden wants to use Tor to build to elapse? Um, I mean, that would be amazing. From, from For Tor institutionally, I think that'd be amazing. And then the question is, 
really can tour ride that ride that wave of going from going from new to hot to big. Um, and certainly, if we were making revenue from people using our thing, we would want to help tour with that. I'm, I'm, you know, at a personal level, I'm a supporter of tour and will continue to be like a, a donor to tour. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think there is maybe some scenario too where we could, um, well, there are, there are anonymity networks that seek to address that problem of scalability by baking, by using crypto to bake in um, an incentive structure for node operators. So Tor could do that potentially someday if they started to run into this problem. Um, I don't think they have any plans to right now because I think their sort of social um, model of sustainability and growth is working pretty good. Like people like Tor, so there's community, they have a community that's doing this. So they don't need a, I mean, the incentive structure is you get to be awesome by running a Tor relay node and you get some privacy benefits, I think, by running your own relay node um, or exit node maybe. So there's that, but yeah. And then there's the possibility that we could decide, we could end up in a situation where Tor is a ceiling to our growth and where we have to drop it. And where, what that would look like is we would maybe need to change our threat model. We would need to change the, we would need to accept some security properties that are different than Tor's. Like, you know, if, you, if you're okay with leaking your IP address to the other people in your community, um, then you don't have to use Tor, but you do need something like a tracker to if you don't use Tor, you need a tracker to find when other peers are online and you need a central service or some type of service to help with um, NAT traversal. And so there's like another, there's another way you could have made this something like quiet without Tor um, that uses other methods for tackling peer discovery and NAT traversal. And we could start, we could move to something like that or we can make our own, you know, incentivized scalable like um, not scalable in the sense of like it, it contains the mechanism that attracts more infrastructure to it as it grows and as it needs to. Um, we could make our make a system like that. Those those would be the two the two options. And and I think I think actually the the one of you know building quiet with a tracker and a stun turn server like the kinds of um, help peers connect services that that we're using right now when we're using zoom or that you know every every video calling app ever always has to use because some percentage i think it's like 18 percent of users in most real world scenarios are not able to connect to each other peer-to-peer -peer. you need some central service to, to actually like relay all of the data not just help them bust through the firewall but actually relay all the data um you would you could build something like quiet using a tracker and a and one of these like connection helper services and that would be your dependency on centralization but that's not such a bad sacrifice but that was a that was a long and convoluted answer i hope it was clear um yeah yeah those are the different options well cool um yeah we've we it's probably about time to wrap up i, I know this has been a really good one because i've been quiet um, <laughs> while I've enjoyed listening to y'all. 
sorry, I couldn't help myself, my dramatic pause. Um, but I did have a couple wrap up questions and, and one of them, are you, are you looking for contributors or do you have any specific message for our listeners? And then the second part of my wrap up question is, I just wondered if we could talk just a tiny bit about karaoke, <laughs> because I feel like I would be remiss in not bringing that up, that little uh, uh, bio tidbit there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. Well, the karaoke question is I put in my bio that I love karaoke. Um, I have the word karaoke tattooed on my arm. It's the only tattoo I have. Um, and I, one of my contributions to, to culture has been, or was making a, a, a live performance out of karaoke using Ableton Live as um, to, to make a sort of karaoke mashup mega mix that is sung by the audience. And then I will, you know, perform that with a bunch of wireless mics that I'll start singing on, but then I'll give to everybody else. And the mics have auto tune and effects and things like that. And everybody sings like ridiculous, you know, shock from the nineties together uh, and potentially over music that does not belong to the song that they're singing it belongs to another song. And um, I don't know. I, I love, I call that performance karaoke crime and there's a funny quote about it. Once I did a performance, this is really funny. Once I did a performance that got written up by the New York Times because of the band that I was opening for, and they called me a boisterous one-man spitfire that inspired enthusiasm and sometimes revulsion. And I was <laughs> like, yes. That is winning right there. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you're into karaoke. That is that is like the highest point you can get, I think, as a karaoke practitioner. That's pretty great. Um, yeah. But um, but so, so that's me and karaoke. And then in terms of how people can contribute, um, the thing I need more than anything else, more than anything else in the world right now are um, people who are in a position, people who um, understand InfoSec and are in a position to recommend or recommend against um, tools, uh, to, to friends or, um, or some organizations or, or some community, like anyone who, who understands uh, privacy and security and is often in a position of recommending or helping people find tools that fit their needs. I, I need people like that to talk to, um, to tell me what I'm, what I'm doing wrong, what I should be thinking about and to like work with to refine the product to get to the point where they can recommend it um as as a solution for some some users and some threat models that's that's the most maybe the most important thing and then one notch down from that is i need people who are willing for some reason to try this out and in a regular way to actually try to use this as a communication tool regularly like we are doing internally um, even though it has no features yet although we'll add them quickly and we'll add the ones if you do this we will add the ones you need before we do anything else <laughs> Um, you will have, you will be a part of a small number of people who have total control over our priorities. And, um, and those are the two things I need. InfoSec experts who can tell me what I'm doing right and wrong and refine with, with me as, as we go. And um, people who are really, who'd be down to use this for some reason. And uh yeah, and then as far as contribution, open source contributions go, like that would be amazing. But I, we're currently set up as a team that's you know working full time in a more traditional traditional way, um, 
and we and so you you i would just sort of uh just to set an ex just to be fair in setting an expectation you might have to work with us on that to create a space and a role for you that that is that's comfortable and satisfying and but i i'm willing to do that and be amazing um to have to have contributions i think at some point when we're a little farther along it will be become more open to contributions and one thing i'm really excited about is because our project does not have a central service dependency we're not going to be like signal where you know there's just one signal um this thing is built to be radically forkable and that's not to say that i want you know a million forks to exist or everything to be a fork but um it would be best you know if people contribute to our project but you will be able to contribute to our project knowing that if we do something someday that you don't like you can fork it and you don't have to spin up a million aws instances to support your users you will just be able to fork it and have a thing that you think is great um i don't know if that helps but yeah yeah it does well that's great maybe maybe we can uh create a little reality 2.0 community with it with We'll see. We'll see if we're nerdy enough to figure it out. Yeah, yeah. I'm also really interested in people. So. I, I'd be really interested in, and this would be a cool challenge. If someone's like messaging app, that's boring. But I really want, you know, a password sharing app or a Kanban board that's private or a, you know, some other type of team collaboration tool that's private. I would be, I would be into, I'd be really excited about talking with you about how to do that and help you, you know, use what pieces of our stack are useful to you, or maybe even talk through how we could expose some of the stack or expose some of our stack to an app by a third party developer so that you could like build the app in quiet and um you sort of use quiet as the back end for uh, another type of application that's sharing state between members of a community and then you wouldn't have to worry about like things like identity and authentication or the peer-to-peer -peer networking we would handle that but you could build a cool like you know react app for team collaboration that then was like super duper private that's also something i'm interested in if if you're I, if you're into that um just as i, I want to say i i definitely want to do something in bloomington indiana we have several communities we want to start there we want to do something small experimental it'd be great if we could use your tool when you know if you're ready for it and I'll, we have a developer there, <laughs> but he's a full stack guy and he's working with us. He's got 10 hours a week he wants to give us. Um, I think it'd be, we should have a conversation about it. Yeah, we would love to. And we're, we're ready. We're ready now. Our mobile, mobile apps aren't ready. So for use case requires mobile apps. We aren't ready for you yet, but we would be in, I think three or four months. Um, we already have proof of concepts on mobile that work. We just sort of need to commit to finishing that cycle of work. Um, and yeah, and we can add features fairly rapidly now, I think. So if there's like small sort of things you need like reactions or images or people have been giving us feedback like that and we're prioritizing some of that stuff just to get the ball rolling with people and create something that's minimally satisfying. Um, so what well, platforms we're do you support? Oh yeah, good question. Um, so right now it's, uh, right now we support Windows, uh, Linux and with Linux, we, we our releases are app images. So we support Linux, Windows and um, and Mac. And we have proofs of concept for Android and iOS. Another interesting question we didn't get to talk about is the web platform and uh, and mm -hmm. how to make your apps on the web platform, but maybe that's for another. 
Yeah, I, we we do we we say this a lot, but this one we definitely need a follow up because you know <laughs> we would really like to talk about this again. I think when when things move even further along. Cool. Yeah, yeah. we should definitely regroup then. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Cool. This yeah, great. thank you so much. Thank you both to both of you for um for joining us because it meant that i got to listen and enjoy it was great <laughs> not that i don't yes. enjoy also asking questions but it was awesome i'm super grateful to all of you and i'm really grateful to kyle for all the questions that i think structured <laughs> conversation essentially in a really great way um and it was cool i'm grateful to find out about it i might become an alpha user myself here because i have some of the <laughs> use cases you're interested in so oh th this would Ooh, I'm so excited. Let's yeah, let's talk about You guys, you guys sure. should take this and run with it. I think it'll be know, a lot of fun. Yeah. That would be I'd awesome. Love to see where that goes. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's what we're here for, bringing the cool people together. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank yeah, you that's so what, much. That's why I wanted to get you here, Holmes. I think, I think yeah. there's, there's a lot of promise. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you, everyone, who has listened through this whole thing, which I'm pretty sure is actually a sizable number because this one's been really good. So uh, <laughs> with that, uh, we, will, uh, we will talk to you next time. And in the meantime. <laughs>